You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. Uh, with all of that, I would love to get on a Bible study with you. Are you ready for that? Uh, let's uh, open up our Bibles to Genesis chapter 7. Genesis chapter 7. And if you need a Bible, the ushers are in the aisles. Uh, you will need a Bible. So if you don't have one, raise your hand. And uh, uh, we'll get into the Word. Uh, we are on a, uh, a journey through the book of Genesis. The study is titled... In the beginning, God. And uh, today, a special message on the flood. We're looking at the flood part two. We're in the second part of Noah's flood. And uh, we'll be looking at some very interesting things today as we, as we do. Let me set the stage for what has happened. Um, we worship a God who is outside of time, space, and matter. The Bible tells us that he spoke the universe into existence. He spoke time, space, and matter into existence. That's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning is time. The heavens is space. Uh, God spoke time, space, and matter into existence. He made all of this for man. He made man for himself. He gave man dominion over all of the earth, and he said, hey, I have given, made all of this for you. Rule over it. Have dominion over it. Uh, reproduce and multiply. Here's a beautiful woman. Here's a beautiful man. Uh, be married. Enjoy. And now have dominion over the earth. But instead of listening to God, Adam and Eve rebelled against God and listened to the devil. Instead of obeying God, Adam and Eve rebelled and obeyed the devil. Instead of believing God, Adam and Eve rebelled and believed the devil. And as a result, the fall of man was colossal. Hard for us to grasp. All we know is this nature that we have. But Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. They were clothed with the very person of God. They, were, they, they radiated his spirit. Uh, they were sinless. I can't even imagine I try to be good. They were good. I try to be selfless. They were selfless. I try to be loving. They were loving, right? The fall was extreme. And uh, as a result of the fall, the earth began to get more and more corrupt. There was also demonic activity on the earth running rampant. And all of that brought the earth to a place where wickedness was abounding, Wickedness was abounding so much that there was constant violence and wickedness on the earth. This may surprise you. We looked at this in the, in the flood part one. The population on the earth during the time of Noah's flood was greater than the population today. Um, and wickedness, the imagination of man's heart, only evil continually. Uh, we are not far from that right now. And Jesus says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when 
the Son of Man returns. And uh, we looked at some parallels uh, last week in the message of the days of Noah, the radical population explosion, uh, the immorality, all of the things. And these things are the same things that we're dealing with today in, in the world. And so um, uh, we see that the time is at hand. Uh, Tuesday night, by the way, I was uh, studying for men's ministry and a car drives by, a convertible, music so loud, I could hear it in my office. The lyrics were so vulgar, it shocked me, shocked me. I could not repeat it in a locker room. If I was a pagan, I couldn't repeat it in a locker room, much less should it be on the lips of any human. I mean, it was like, and I thought, oh my gosh, uh, as I'm studying in Genesis, the depravity and the wickedness that was on the earth, we are not far off. And so God brought a colossal flood, a global flood on the earth. And uh, uh, this is where we're picking up halfway through this journey on the ark. Uh, Noah preached for 120 years as he built the ark. Hey, get saved. Um, but uh, man's heart was pretty hardened. We're picking up in verse 17, chapter 7, verse 17. Uh, here's where we left off last week. God just closed the door to the ark, said, Noah, come on in. And he, he uh, with all the animals, and he comes in, and God closes the door. And it doesn't rain for seven days. And can you imagine the mocking and the jeering that was going on outside of the ark? Old man, you crazy fool. What'd you build a boat in the middle of the desert for? What an idiot. Oh, laughing and jeering. And, and God closes the door. And for seven days, nothing. And then the fountains of the deep open up. The floodwaters come. The ground breaks open. Water starts flooding out from the, from the earth. And that jeering and taunting turns into cries of plea. Noah, buddy, let me in. I believe. I'm sorry. And how hard would it be if you were the one who shut the door to say no? But God shuts the door. And we learned last week that there is a time that God judges sin. There is a day. And when that door closes, there is no more redemption. The Bible says it's appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And that day comes and that door gets shut. And there is no redemption at that point. Today is the day of salvation. Uh, if you are not walking with Jesus Christ, I want you to take this to heart. God does judge sin. And there is a day. 120 years they preach. Come into the ark. But there is a day coming. Uh, let's jump into the text. Uh, verse 17. Now the flood was on the earth 40 days. And the waters increased and lifted up the ark. And it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth greatly increased on the earth. They were just like rapidly rising up. And the ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed or increased exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. Men's shoes too. Uh, 
I know, so bad, so bad, so bad. Uh, but this radical change where all these floods coming up from the, from the fountains of the deep, and, and uh, it wasn't just the rain. As a matter of fact, the rain was probably a small part of it. Verse 11, we looked at last week, the great fountains of the earth being broken up. Um, but everything was covered. Look what it says, verse 20. And the waters prevailed. 15 cubits upward, and the mountains were covered. So 15 cubits over the tallest mountains, the water covered them. A cubit we looked at last week was 18 to 20 inches, depending on a long or short cubit. So at least 22 feet above the tallest mountains where the water uh, prevailed. Uh, look at verse 21. Read these next four words with me in verse 21. Say them out loud. Read them out loud all together. Go ahead. Wow, how sobering. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds died. Cattle died. Beast died. Every creeping thing that creeps on the earth died. And every man died. Oh, how sobering. What a difficult chapter. All, everyone, all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life. All that was on the dry land died because they rejected their God. They would not walk with him. They would not believe him. They would not hear his message. They would not receive his love. They would not walk in his grace. And all of them died. Verse 23, so he, God, destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle and creeping thing and bird of the air. He repeats. He says it again. He's telling us something. Pay attention. Uh, all men died. This was judgment, right? All men died. Birds of the air, they were all destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. Um, amazing to ponder. Eight billion people, 10 billion people. I don't know how many for sure, but all of them perish. And only those who came into the ark could be saved. And you say, how could that be? Because that was God's provision. Anyone could come just by believing. I am thankful that God did not wipe out man totally. I am thankful that he made a provision for man to be saved. And today, God has made a provision for man to be saved. There is an ark. His name is Jesus. The ark of Noah is a prefigure of Jesus. We looked last week. It is covered with atonement on the inside and the outside, covered with pitch inside and out. It is a vessel where he says, come. Anyone who believes can come. Come into the ark, right? Uh, uh, and I imagine, I just can only imagine, Noah preaching for 120 years hey, God's judgment is coming. You better repent. I mean, God's judgment is coming. He's going to judge. You're going to be wiped out. And they said, oh, I mean, come on. I mean, earth's gone on for forever. I mean, come on. I mean, no, no, no. Judgment is coming. Come into the ark. Anyone can come. The doors are open. And for 120 years, Noah preached. Hey, my God is holy. Judgment is coming. 
but he's also gracious. He'll forgive. He's long-suffering. He's patient. He's kind. He's told us what's happening. He's told us what's coming. Come into the ark, and you can be saved. Just come. Just believe. And for 120 years, he preached, and then the door was closed. May we take it to heart. May we take it to heart. And for those of us who are saved, may we remember there's lost that are out there and God wants to use us as his instruments to bring the unbelieving world into the knowledge that there's a God who judges sin and there's a provision for that sin. There's an ark. His name is Jesus. There is no other way man can be saved. There's one door on the ark and there's one way to God. Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way. Uh, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. Uh, Verse 24, and the waters prevailed or increased on the earth 150 days or five, little over five months. Uh, When it says the waters prevailed, it means the waters continued to rise. They continued rising and rising, rising for 150 days over five months. Uh, we're going to find out. We'll learn next week. The waters lasted over a year. On the, uh, uh, They were in the ark over a year. Uh, but for five months, the water increased. And then it took six months for that water to decrease. So uh, here's the story. Um, we say, wow, sobering passage indeed. Sin is real. God's judgment is real. And we'd be wise to take it to heart. I want to remind you of this truth, though. It grieves God's heart to judge men for their sins. It grieves God's heart to judge mankind. Genesis 6.6 tells us that God's heart was grieved by this. Uh, Important for us to, to know, important for us to remember, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. He works hard to bring us to repentance. And if you are here today, you are proof of that. Jesus said, you didn't call me, I called you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. It is God's spirit that is working in you that brought you here to church today. It is God who is drawing us. We merely respond to his love. Jesus said, you didn't love me, I loved you. Uh, I loved you first. We are merely responding to God's love. Just like those of you who are moms, who love first, you or the child? Yeah, you initiated that love, and that child just responds to your love, hopefully, uh, if, uh, uh, if they understand your great love for them. And that is a picture of Jesus and the church. Um, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, but mankind became so sinful, so perverse, so wicked, Uh, We read last week that the earth was filled with violence and it was so filled with wickedness that for 120 years, how many converts were there? Zero. Zero. Noah, Enoch, Lamech, all preaching. Judgment is coming. Zero converts in the earth. Shows you the depravity of man. 120 years, no converts. God's fervent desire is to save us. God's fervent desire is to save us from our sins. And the message of salvation has been proclaimed throughout time by his messengers. And the message is simply this. All who come to him will be saved. Noah preached, hey, just come into the ark. Just believe and you can come. 
And that is God's great message. Uh, I am uh, so in awe of God's grace and mercy towards us that he beckons us, even though we sin against him, to come to him. Uh, and look what uh, the ancient prophet Ezekiel said, uh, Ezekiel 18 on your screens. This is God speaking through Ezekiel. Read with me in a, in a unified voice. Repent and turn from all your transgressions so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgression which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Isn't that wonderful? Here it is in the Old Testament. We're seeing the grace and mercy of God to be born again. Listen, you have a sinful heart. It is in rebellion to me. It's called a sin nature. It means it's your nature to sin. And that's what we inherited from Adam and Eve. God is saying, come to me and I will give you a new heart, a new nature. I'll lead you by my spirit. You'll be born again. Repent and turn away. No, go back. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that you will not be ruined. Do you realize that sin ruins our life? Sin makes our marriages horrible. Sin makes our relationships broken. Sin makes us difficult to be with. Sin makes, us, makes our life a barren wasteland. And God is saying, turn to me, come to me. I'll give you new life. I'll give you a new heart. I'll give you a new mind. Uh, all right, let's go on to the rest of the verse. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live. Uh, that was the message of all the Old Testament prophets. That was the message of Noah, Enoch, Lamech, that was the message of Jesus. That was the message of the apostles. And that is the message of every pastor called by God since that time because this is the heart of God. I don't want to bring judgment. I want to save you. And I will always provide an ark for your salvation. His name is Jesus. He is God in the flesh who went to a cross to die for our sins because all sin will be punished either on Jesus' back or on our own. The choice is ours. And we are here for a short term on this earth, created for God's pleasure, created to know him and to be in relationship with him and to receive his love and to love him back. But he does not force us and the choice is ours. I want to encourage you, if you are here this morning and you have not made Jesus your Lord and Savior, do not leave here today without doing so. There is a day of judgment. It will come and the door will be shut and your eternity will be sealed. If you have walked away from the Lord and he's not the Lord of your life, you've taken that mantle up on your, upon yourselves again and you've been calling the shots, rededicate yourself to the Lord, get right, come on back into the ark. And make Jesus the Lord of your life. His salvation is available to all who call upon him. I want to look at some things uh, to help us be good defenders of the faith. I want to look at some things uh, to give us an intellectual grasp on what God is doing here. You see, the world looks at the flood, and what do they think about it? Do they think this Noah's Ark thing is really cool? Or do they think it's ridiculous? They think it's ridiculous. 
The Bible says, uh, study to show yourself to prove unto God, a workman that needeth not be ashamed, one who can rightly handle the word of truth. I want to give you some tools for that this morning. Uh, so let's look at some of the things that the, that the world looks at on the flood. Did the flood really happen? Was it literal or was it, was it just mythology? Is it just, you know, an allegorical story? I want you to know the Bible unapologetically presents the flood as a literal fact. It gives many specific details about the flood, names, places, dates, dimensions, length of time, elements that happen, incredible detail, events that actually happen. It doesn't describe it as mythology in any way, shape, or form. Furthermore, Jesus spoke of the flood as being literal. So did Ezekiel, so did Isaiah, so did Paul, so did Peter, uh, so did all of the Old Testament patriarchs, uh, all of Judaism for centuries, all taught a literal flood. So the Bible clearly teaches that the flood was literal. Furthermore, uh, by the way, if the Bible is not against myth uh, mythology, the Bible is not against parables and allegory and poetry. The Bible uses all of these things. The Bible employs parables. Jesus spoke in parables. The Bible employs allegory. Jesus used allegory. The Bible has beautiful poetry. Uh, it's very effective. As a matter of fact, the Bible's poetry is the most beautiful poetry on earth. I would be hard-pressed to find a more beautiful, written, well, uh, the prose is amazing, in the Psalms. I mean, Psalm 23, just uh, amazing. Psalm 19, the best poetry in the world. The Bible is not against these things. It employs these things. But this is not poetry. This is not allegory. Uh, if the flood was mythology or if the flood was allegory, what would the point of the story be? You see, in Greek mythology, stories were made to prove valuable points, uh, to make an impact on, on life, right? Uh, in Greek mythology, we have the story of Narcissus, right? How, how many of you know the Greek mythology of Narcissus? right? Uh, Narcissus was a powerful hunter. Here's a picture of him. Uh, he was a powerful hunter. <laughs> I know I had the PG 13 it for church. I know it's an old, <laughs> uh, old painting. Uh, but Narcissus was a powerful hunter who was strappingly handsome. He was a, incredibly beautiful. And he was, uh, uh, so attractive, so handsome, that scores of beautiful women tried to have a rem romantic relationship with him. He sent them all away. And the women that came to him said, he is so busy looking at himself that he doesn't know me. <laughs> and the story goes on to say that Narcissus this powerful, handsome hunter, one day was hunting by a lake and came to the side of the lake 
and saw his own reflection in the lake and fell in love with his own reflection and died alone. And that is the mythology of Narcissus. And we see there's a tremendous story there, right? There's great value because guys can be a little... You said it, not me. <laughs> and we can be so self-absorbed, not just, this is men and women. We can be so self-absorbed that we don't even see the beauty in the other person. We can be so self-absorbed that we end up alone and by ourselves and empty. Mythology has a beautiful purpose. There is a time and a place for it. As Ecclesiastes says, to everything under heaven, there's a purpose, there's a season. But if, this, if the flood was mythology, what was its message? Well, there are some who say, well, it is mythology. And the purpose of the message was just to say, well, you better be good or you're going to get judged. And so the purpose of the, of the, mytho, the mythological flood was to be a good person. Well, that makes no sense if you've actually read the story because Noah wasn't a good person. The earth was filled with wickedness. Noah just simply believed God. And because he believed God, it was a credit to him for righteousness. And because he believed God, God said, I'll use you to build an ark and, and I'll use you to. And that's the same ministry that you and I have, by the way. To tell the world there's an ark and you ought to enter in. His name is Jesus. You ought to get saved. But that doesn't mean we're righteous. Furthermore, at the end of the study, the, uh, the story, the, the, the flood's over and Noah gets out of the ark and we can't even get one chapter. We'll see it in two weeks. We can't even get one chapter out of the story. In the same chapter that Noah leaves the ark, he goes out and gets drunk. And not just any drunk. We're talking naked drunk. <laughs> <laughs> so the story isn't that Noah's a good person. Doesn't add up. Do you know why? Because it's not mythology. It's literal. It's literal. And the Bible unapologetically presents the flood as a literal fact. Uh, it's a literal flood that God made to judge the sinfulness of mankind. And the whole earth was wicked, and God judged it. Do you know why people want to make the flood myth mythology? Why they want to make it allegorical? Do you know why? Because they want to deny the fact that God actually does what? Judges sin. They don't want to acknowledge that fact. And by making the flood allegorical, we don't have to deal with that. I just want to say it clearly. This is not allegory. This is literal. And God does judge sin, either on Jesus or on you. That's the way it works. Another thing that we deal with uh, in the unbeliever's mind is was, okay, if we believe there was a flood, okay, well, I'll give you that. There was a flood. Okay, was it a local flood or a global flood? I don't believe in a global flood. It might have been a little flood there, right? Uh, was it a local flood or a global flood? I want you to know the evidence of a global flood is unparalleled. It is inarguable. It is just absolute. The evidence of a global flood. I'm going to give you several points 
that show the evidence of a global flood. Number one is the biblical narrative. First and foremost, more important, the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative shows that the flood was global by using global terms. It uses tons of global terms, 16 global terms in chapters 6 through 9 describing the flood, 16 global terms that are just uh, irrefutable. Terms like all, terms like every, terms like whole. It says things like this, all flesh died. All things were destroyed. Everything on earth, everything under the whole heaven, everything that had the breath of life in it, I mean, over and over and over, it uses global terms. And may I remind you of something? The Bible is the most historically accurate book on the planet. You might want to pay attention to it. When it says all and every and everyone, it means all and every and everyone. The Bible is the most accurate book on the planet. Even unbelieving archaeologists hold on to the Bible. They keep it in their right hand because everywhere that the Bible says something happened, they put a shovel in the ground and guess what they found? Sure enough, it happened. Everything from ancient civilizations to where the AMPM Arco found oil all came from the Bible. The Bible is very accurate. We might want to pay attention to what it says. And the plain reading of the Bible clearly speaks of a global, global flood. Uh, by the way, the Bible says, uh, we're going to read next week, that the Bible landed on the mountains of Ararat. Ararat is in modern day Iran and Turkey, right between them, right on the, uh, uh, right on the border between um, uh, Turkey and the east. West, yeah, east side of Turkey, the west side of Iran, right there is the mountains of Ararat. And uh, the Bible says that the ark landed on the mountains of Ararat, which are 17,000 feet in the air. Hard to do that with a local flood, right? 17,000 feet up there, right? Uh, so uh, kind of crazy. Uh, so the Bible says that plainly. The second reason that we, uh, irrefutable evidence of a global flood there are 270 stories from all over the world about a global flood. From every continent, from every people group, from every uh, you know, walk of life, there is a story of a global flood. How do you explain this? Here's a list of just a few of the 270. Uh, in Mesopotamia, we have the Epic of Gilgamesh. In Hawaii, we have the, the uh, flood uh, story of the Ark of Nu. In China, we have the Nua flood. In Greece, we have Deucalion's flood. In India, we have Manu's flood. The Incas had the Unu Pakakuti. Uh, and on and on and on we could go about these ancient stories all over the earth about a global flood. How do you explain this? Uh, we're going to look more into this when we get into the Tower of Babel. There's a good reason these stories are all over the earth. And yet they are. 270 worldwide stories all across the earth that have a story of 
a global flood. Uh, this story of the Epic of Gilgamesh in Mesopotamia, uh, by the way, is one of the oldest um, uh, pieces of literature in existence. It, uh, uh, we know a lot about Gil, uh, Gilgamesh. Gilgamesh was a Sumerian king in Uruk, uh, that is modern-day Iraq. He was the king in 2700 B.C. And the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, dating back that far, writes of a flood, writes of a boat, writes of all these animals coming onto a boat, writes of birds being sent out from the boat, uh, writes of one family and a man coming into the boat, and uh, writes of the, uh, um, the boat landing on a mountain. And again, this is in Mesopotamia, 2700 BC, not far off from the actual time this happened. And we have, uh, you can look at the tablet. I, uh, I actually want to get a, a uh, they sell little tablets of a remake of the, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, and I'd like to get one. Um, uh, so anyway, I mean, that just, it's, it just it corroborates the global flood. Uh, and again, 270 of these stories worldwide. Um, people groups from every continent speak of it. Uh, the Chinese culture, so interesting. Uh, Chinese, by the way, is the oldest, uh, well, one of the oldest written languages in the world. It dates back 4,000 years, the, the Chinese language. Uh, we know that the Chinese language was not alphabetical, right? It's not letters. What is it? Characters. Characters. Uh, they're actually drawings. It's interesting. It is the most spoken language in the world today. Uh, we have almost 8 billion people on the earth. 25% of the world's population speaks Chinese. Uh, almost 2 billion people use this language today. Do you want to know something amazing? China, although today is a very pagan country, China's language has deep biblical roots. I want to prove this to you. Uh, take a look at this word for large ship. This is the Chinese character for large ship. You can see it's, it's, a, it's picture language, right? And on the left, you have the, the word for a vessel or boat. And a large ship is a boat with the picture person uh, or breath and eight. Uh, eight persons on a boat is the word for large ship. Where did that come from? Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives, eight people on the ark. It makes no sense whatsoever why this ancient language uses this word for large ship unless they knew of what? A global flood with eight people on it that got saved. That's the word for large ship to this day. Don't take my word for it. You can get Google uh, Translate. I did it. I spent a week geeking out on Chinese. Uh, <laughs> you can do this. Uh, check this out. This is the word for total in Chinese. Eight earth together is the total. How would that work if they didn't know of Noah's flood? It wouldn't. It makes no sense. Eight people on the earth together is the total number of people saved. That's all, everything, right? Now, this gets really interesting. The word flood is the word total and water together. 
Water there on the left on the top, and then total, that's the word flood. Why would the word flood be, well, let's break it down even further. Look at this. The word total is eight earth together, and so flood is eight earth together, and water is flood. Why would that be? What am I getting at? I'm getting at the whole earth shows evidence of a global flood, even the old, one of the oldest recorded languages we have. Is this not astonishing? Uh, you want to see something incredibly astonishing? Look at this next one. The name Noah is in Chinese. Here's how you write Noah in Chinese. Don't believe me? Get your phones out. Get Google Translate and type in Noah. Choose Chinese. Just choose, instead of simplified Chinese, choose traditional Chinese, and you will see it. Here's how you write Noah. These two characters, the one on the left means promise or approved, and the one on the right means second. What does that mean? Why does that mean Noah? Well, here's why. God made a covenant with Adam. That was the first covenant. And the second covenant God made was with Noah. We have the Adamic covenant and we have the Noahic covenant. It was the second promise. And the name Noah in Chinese is from two uh, characters, second promise. How do you describe this? How do you explain this? Well, the ancient Chinese knew of a global flood and they knew of biblical truth, right? Uh, don't believe me? Here's another one. <laughs> Forbidden. Look at this. Forbidden, there it is. It's two trees on top of command is forbidden. A tree of life, you can partake. And a tree of knowledge of good and evil, you cannot partake. Two trees on top of command is forbidden in Chinese. How do you explain this? Uh, check this one out. This one's my favorite. This is righteousness. Righteousness is two characters, a sheep and me. And the sheep is covering the me. That is the picture of righteousness. Jesus was the Lamb of God that took away the sin of the world. It all started in the Garden of Eden where God showed this to Adam and Eve. This is what's coming for you. There's going to be a lamb. He's going to be perfect. And you're going to confess your sins on him. And God had Adam and Eve put their hands on this animal, confess their sin, and then God had them sacrifice that animal and he clothed them with that animal's skins. And that is a picture of righteousness that we have through Jesus Christ. We confess our sins. They are placed on Jesus' back. He takes the punishment of our sins and we are clothed with his righteousness. That is the gospel in the book of Genesis, and that is the gospel in the oldest, one of the oldest recorded languages on earth. Righteousness is sheep covering me. Uh, this is also interesting. Look at this character, me. The character, me, is actually two characters. So righteousness is uh, sheep and me, and me is hand and knife. Why would me be hand and knife? Uh, because that's what happened at the fall of man, and now righteousness literally is sheep 
hand knife. Unbelievable. And hand and knife equals me. Uh, one more for you uh, to leave on a good note. The word happiness or blessing uh, has this origin. It is God, one man in a garden. God and Adam in a garden is happiness and blessing. And there's the characters all put together. That's the word for happiness and blessing. Uh, just amazing, is it not? Uh, here as we see, the Chinese language shows clearly solid biblical foundations. And those biblical foundations show the flood, a global flood on the earth where only eight people were saved in one of the oldest languages on the earth. Now, this is interesting because the Chinese language goes back to at least 2000 BC, 2000 BC. If you're a Bible scholar, you know that Moses was at the Red Sea in 1446 BC. This is 600 years before that. And the canon of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, did not come around until after 1446 BC. And this predates that by at least five, 600 years, which means that the knowledge of God's word was on the earth long before Moses came around, which the Bible teaches. And here we have concrete evidence of that. This is concrete evidence, man, that you can't deny. The concrete evidence shows Chinese language going back 4,000 years clearly shows there is one God. There was a Garden of Eden. There is Adam and Eve. There was a global flood. There was a man named Noah. And all of that was centuries before Moses even came along. Now today, China is largely a godless nation. Only 7% of the Chinese are Christian. And that happened because of Buddha, of Tao, and of Confucius. All of which came into existence around 4 and 500 uh, uh, A.D., uh, but for centuries before that, China was once a godly nation. And you can read ancient Ch Chinese history. Uh, for the first three dynasties, uh, they believed in one God and offered sacrifices to him, which shows us how quickly we can fall away from the truth if we're not careful. Uh, so may we be wise. Um, so we have the word of God showing us. We have these stories, all 270 stories throughout the earth. We have the oldest languages on earth showing us of a global flood. Uh, you know what else we have? We have the fossil record showing clear, concrete evidence of a global flood. Uh, we have billions of fossils that have been found in sediment layers on all seven continents of the earth. Uh, fossils of animals, of marine life, of reptiles, of dinosaurs, uh, etc. Uh, question for you. How did myriads of marine fossils and animal fossils get created on the earth? How did that happen? Why are there millions of fossils on the earth? Let me just ask. When a gazelle dies on the plains of Africa, does it turn into a fossil? What happens to it? 
It gets eaten in a matter of days or hours, and then the bones sit there and they bleach in the sun and they disintegrate into nothing. It doesn't turn into a fossil. If you bury Fido in the backyard, does he turn into a fossil? No. He decays, oxygen just decays, all the stuff in, you know, rapidly, and the bones and everything just turn to decay uh, worm food, right? Uh, happens all the way. Uh, in order for an organism to be fossilized, the remains need to be covered by large amounts of sediment soon after the creature dies or even while the creature is still alive. And that is exactly what happened in the fossil record. We see fossils, tons of them. It's not rare. It's common. Fossils with fish, with another fish in their mouth. And the sediment just poured over them instantly and traps in under pressure with multiple sediment layers so that no oxygen is there and then it becomes a fossil. It doesn't decay. It eliminates all the oxygen with the pressure and then it becomes a fossil. That's what's needed. And the fossil layer is uh, just clearly evident, man. In the flood, billions and billions of creatures were caught in massive mud flows and rapidly buried layer upon layer of deep sediment and preserved. Uh, that's what the fossil record is, and that's what the fossil record shows. And the fact that there are billions of fossils, literally billions of fossils, encased in sedimentary rock all over the world, it's a powerful testimony of a global flood. There's no other way for them to get there. You go to the Grand Canyon, and you can see the fossil layers that are there, the, the sediment layers that are there. And... Uh, Scientists today will tell you, oh, that took billions and billions of years, and yet the fossil record doesn't support that. If it took billions and billions of years, you should see all kinds of different fossils in different layers in the strata, and the layer down here should have really you know, old fossils, like a fish starting to sprout a leg or something, and then up here, you actually have lizard fossils, right? But guess what? The fossil record in all these sediment layers doesn't show it. As a matter of fact, you see some of the same uh, fossil records in this sediment layer in the Grand Canyon as you do in the one way down here. How could that be? Unless they were all deposited what? Rapidly at once. And that's exactly what happened in a global flood. It is impossible for us to fathom what happened on Earth. Uh, the Earth was radically shaken, and I'll talk about that in just a moment. Uh, but... Uh, uh, that's what produced the fossil record, was a global flood. Um, incredibly strange, incredibly strange, is that marine fossils, marine fossils, have been found not just in the plains, but also where? On the highest mountains. Even the Himalayas, the highest mountains in the world. Do you know how high the Himalayas are? The Himalayas are 29,000 feet high. When you get in your uh, little uh, commercial airliner with Alaskan Airlines or United or whatever, and you fly, you fly at 30,000 feet. Well, the Himalayas are that high. And at that level, uh, this is what it's like. The air is thin. 
Uh, the, the ground is barren. Um, you know, it's, uh, uh, the, the, the land looks arid and brown, and it looks like it's been that way since the beginning of time. And um, these mountains are literally hundreds of miles away from an ocean. Uh, and yet, look what we find on these Himalaya mountains. What does that look like? That's a fossil record from the Himalaya mountains. Here's another one. There's a fish with a fish in its mouth on the Himalaya mountains. Here's another one. What does that look like? Yeah, here's another one. All of these are on the Himalaya mountains. How do you explain that? These mountains, again, are literally hundreds of miles away from the closest sea. So how is it possible that tons of marine life have been found on multiple locations in the Himalayas? Even Mount Everest, the tallest mountain in the world. How do you explain that? Now, I want you to know something. That doesn't mean that the flood covered those mountains. But it does mean that those mountains used to not be so high, and they were under an ocean flood. Uh, which is exactly what the Bible teaches. Um, there was tremendous geographical changes, as I mentioned. Uh, the flood uh, was the earth in upheaval. Uh, Genesis 6 says that God broke up the fountains of the deep. And uh, many good scientists, many good geologists believe that Pangaea happened at the time of the flood. There was giant earthquakes and giant volcanic eruptions. And these volcanic eruptions, uh, just shooting uh, volcanic ash up into the sky, shooting steam up into the sky, would be part of what caused a torrential downpour. And the earth was in upheaval. Uh, there's great books on these subjects. Some actually believe that the earth was shaken so violently that the earth's axis actually changed at the time of the flood to the 23 and a third degrees of it is right now. Um, the mountains were uplifted by tremendous pressure during this time, and the Pangaea happened as the tectonic plates were broken and moved up, and the earth was moving all over. Uh, mountains were literally uplifted by the pressures of, uh, of, of, that were on the earth's mantle. And it's interesting, uh, large fossilized palm leaves have been discovered in the Himalayas. Palm trees in the Himalayas, the tallest mountains in the world. Uh, this type of flora, this type of plat is nowhere found in the Himalayas, proving that they were once close to sea level. The Himalayas were once close to sea level. How could that possibly be? Well, that's exactly what the Bible teaches. At the flood, God, well, let me just give you the verse. Uh, this is uh, Psalm 104. Uh, let me hear you read this. You clothed the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At your command, the water fled, and at the sound of your thunder, it hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. Then you set a firm boundary for the seas, that's for the oceans, so they would never again cover the earth. Wow. The Bible actually says that, in, that when God caused the flood, 
He opened up the fountains of the deep and it covered the whole earth. And then to stop the flood, God lowered the depths of the oceans and he raised up the mountains and the fossil record proves this. Quinky dink. Uh, we know, science has proven, if the whole earth was level, we would be 8,800 feet underwater. That's 1.7 miles underwater. That's how much water is on the earth. The earth has so much water that 71% of the earth's surface is water, and 90% of the earth's oceans are two miles deep. The Mariana Trench is one of the deepest parts in the ocean that we've discovered so far. It is 36,200 feet deep. That is seven miles deep. You could bury Mount Everest in the Mariana Trench and still have to swim 1.3 miles if you were standing on the top of Mount Everest to get to the surface of the water. This is exactly what the Bible says happened. And the archaeological evidence prove it. There is so much water on the earth that scientists estimate there are 333 million cubic miles of water on the earth. And the surface of the earth is only 170 mi 197 square miles. So there is more than enough water to completely cover the earth. And after the flood, we're going to see it took six months for this to happen. Uh, God raised up the mountains and lowered the ocean depths. And that is why we have fossils, records of uh, all this marine life on the highest mountains. Uh, we were all taught in school that the continental drift took billions of years, right? Um, we know there, there was Pangaea, right? Uh, uh, we can see that. Uh, but uh, we're told it took billions of years. Um, but it may have happened rapidly. It may have happened rapidly at the flood as God broke the fountains of the, the deep up. There, again, there were radical earthquakes, volcanic activity. Uh, there is a scientist, a French scientist named Antonio uh, Snyder Pellegrini. Uh, if, you ever, if you like Pellegrinis, you can just think of this guy. Uh, he was a French scientist and a geographer who studied plate tectonics and studied Pangaea. Uh, he was way ahead of his time uh, on modern-day Pangaea. And he wrote a book in, <clears throat> in opposition to the uh, current theory of the continental drift. And he gives con convincing arguments that there was catastrophic movement of the tectonic plates. That it happened rapidly over a shorter period of time. And his findings were based on the massive deposits in the sediment layers, on the changes in the ocean floor, and in the, in the fact of plant life fossil records that have been found. What he found was there was uh, flora or plant life fossil records in Europe and in North America that were the exact same fossil records. Here's a picture of a map. Look at North America and look at Europe, uh, and you can see how it just, it just fits together, right? And what he found was there are 
fossil records of plants that are the exact same plant fossil records in Europe that are there in North America that, don't, that are no longer indigenous. And how did that happen if those two weren't together? And uh, he gives very uh, uh, incredible evidence. It's a worthy read, by the way, of how this Pangaea happened rapidly during the time of the flood. Very interesting, by the way, we're out of time, and I don't have time to, I'm already over time, but uh, his book called The Creation and Its Mysteries was published in 1958. Just so happens there was another book published in 1958. What is it? Excuse me, 1858, excuse me. Uh, His book was published, another book published the same year, The Origin of the Species. Two very different theories of what happened here. Uh, I need to wrap us up. Uh, Let's look at what we've, just kind of review what we've looked at. The evidence of a global flood, just like the Bible says, is overwhelming. There was a worldwide flood, and God judged the earth, just like the Bible says that he did. And the evidence is incredible. Uh, We have the biblical record, first and foremost. We have the words of Jesus, most importantly. We have the fossil record that supports it, the rapid sediment layers that we have today that, have, that created fossils. We have the marine life on top of Mount Everest, the tallest mountains in the world, the Himalayas. Uh, additional fossil records that show uh, the earth was once underwater. We have 200 stories on Virtually, not virtually, on literally every continent from virtually every people group. We have the ancient Chinese record that clearly shows in one of the oldest languages that they knew about God. They knew about the Garden of Eden. They knew about Adam and Eve. They knew about a global flood. They knew about a man named Noah. How do you explain all of these things? And the Bible says, as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be when the Son of Man returns. There will be wickedness on the earth. There will be those who are refusing to hear his message, denying the very evidence of it, hardening their hearts to it. But God's message will continue to go out. Come into the ark, all you who will be saved, and I will save you. I will save you. Uh, Next week, we'll uh, finish up on the flood, I promise. And... uh, We'll look at some fascinating things that happen as Noah comes off the ark. Um, Why don't we stand together? You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless.